Hey everyone, welcome to part two of the discussion between Bennett Tomlin and myself about Tether and Bitfinex, the way they behaved, how we find ourselves where we are today. In part one, we went over the history of Tether and Bitfinex, some of the earlier red flags and issues that we've seen, and how we believe that reflects on them currently. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about why the New York Attorney General went after Bitfinex and Tether in the first place, what the settlement means for Bitfinex and Tether, and a few other topics that we reflected on. I hope you enjoy it. Part one isn't necessary listening, so you can just jump right in right now. But if you want to hear about the earlier history and what drove us to look into this in the first place, go ahead and give that a listen. Thanks. In the timeline and history of the two companies, where, where should we be looking next? Well, I think uh, March and April of 2017, this period is important because that's when Bitfinex finally announces they've paid off all their BFX tokens, they've made everyone whole after they did the haircut, and then they get cut off from banking. Bitfinex were banking with several different Taiwanese banks who used Wells Fargo in the United States as their correspondent bank. Uh, Wells Fargo chose to stop serving Bitfinex and Tether, and in response, Bitfinex and Tether decided it was a good idea to sue Wells Fargo. Do we have any idea why Wells Fargo decided to drop Bitfinex and Tether as a as their correspondent banking provider? Not as far as I know. It's often difficult for crypto companies to find and maintain banking because crypto transactions, I mean, depending on your frame of reference, they either are a risky business to bank with a lot of strange transactions coming in or these totally legitimate transactions coming in look a lot like illegitimate transactions and high-risk transactions. And so banks will often decide that they don't want to have that kind of risk on their books. We don't know the specific details of why Wells Fargo cut off Bitfinex and Tether. Bitfinex and Tether claimed in their lawsuit that they were surprised by it, that they felt that they had never misrepresented their business to the banks in any way, and that it was coming out of nowhere. Why did Bitfinex and Tether drop their lawsuit? Oh, because it was frivolous in the first place. Phil Potter basically said in a whale pool team speak that they filed the lawsuit never expecting to get any kind of actual relief from the lawsuit. Their goal was basically to try to get a meeting with Wells Fargo, make sure that try to get Wells Fargo to listen to them so they could try to find some way to get their banking stabilized, at least for a short period. But they dropped it pretty shortly after they filed it, and they had issues with banking from then on. It's fair to point out that at that time, there was no like Silvergate operating the way it does now. Silvergate existed, of course, but Silvergate wasn't primarily used as a cryptocurrency banking provider at that time. I think we also had other banks that were avoiding it that are now, I think Signature and BNY Mellon are both now at least crypto curious. I don't know if they're actually providing banking for any cryptocurrency companies, but I, I believe they're crypto curious. And there's there's other, um, Dell Tech obviously is the one we think about. My basic point here being that at the time, it was difficult for cryptocurrency companies to find banking. At the same time, I think it's fair for skeptics like us to point to the fact that like Coinbase has existed since then. And a lot of these other ones that have fiat have existed since then. And they haven't had the same banking issues that Bitfinex did. Bitfinex and Tether seem to have banking issues that are much worse 
than their competitor banks. But especially during this period, a lot of exchanges were having trouble with banking. Jesse Powell told, uh, told us that one time on Twitter that they were basically using their employees' PayPal accounts to service withdrawals for a while. And that uh, Jesse himself was renting various PayPal accounts to be able to service that. So it was not a uniquely Bitfinex and Tether problem, but uh, they do seem to have had difficulty for the longest time since then in finding and maintaining a stable banking partner. Part of the reason that it was maybe more noticeable and more called out at the time was because Bitfinex was the market leader, right? So because Bitfinex was market leader and all the volume was there, when they had banking issues, even if Coinbase had banking issues and stuff occasionally, a lot less people were going to notice that as opposed to the people on Bitfinex's exchange, right? Yeah, I mean, Bitfinex was a huge exchange for a lot of their history. And so we're dealing with a lot of money coming in and coming out. And besides that, for US-based banks, I think their general risk tolerance is going to be lower towards an offshore entity. So when you're dealing with like Bitfinex and Tether, who are primarily incorporated outside the United States, if you're a bank's risk manager or whatever, you're going to look at that and it's going to make you a little bit more nervous probably than a US-based exchange would. This is a good topic for us to broach because although it seems almost trivial, like what? So they lost a banking partner who gives a shit. Actually, we give a shit because what ends up happening after that is they seek out the likes of Crypto Capital Core and other money services businesses that actually aren't MSBs and aren't registered with anything. And, and they're seeking out these people because they are desperate to be able to move fiat to traders and from traders. And they are struggling desperately to do that. And so they do pretty much zero due diligence and seek out the worst actors in the space. So let's Let's go ahead and talk about Crypto Capital Core now. I love Crypto Capital Corp. So Bitfinex and Crypto Capital Corp started working together in 2014. Crypto Capital Corp was a Panamanian payments processor, allegedly, that was serviced a variety of crypto businesses. What Crypto Capital actually was, or seems to have been, was a largely fraudulent criminal enterprise that misrepresented their core business to banks in order to open a variety of accounts so that the principles of crypto capital could embezzle from their customers, enable money laundering, and also, as a side effect, allow these exchanges access to banking accounts. So Bitfinex and Tether get cut off from their Taiwanese banks and Wells Fargo in March of 2017. Bitfinex is able to get an account at Noble Bank in Puerto Rico, which is not a bank, but an international financial entity founded by Brock Pierce, Tether's co-founder. Tether has no bank account from March of 2017 until September 15th of 2017. Bitfinex and Tether are both using Crypto Capital Corp, which is this shady payments processor to handle a lot of their deposits and withdrawals. Bitfinex does have a bank account, but it only receives deposits from two large institutional partners, and so doesn't account for the money coming in or out from the majority of Bitfinex's traders. Tether has no bank account. They've got about 60 million total in backing that they keep in the bank account of Stuart Hogner, their general counsel, up at Bank of Montreal. They claim that they had about another, oh, towards the end of this period, they had another about 330 million of their backing mixed into Bitfinex's bank account. 
This is, again, strange because the only two deposits that went into this Bitfinex bank account were from these two institutional partners, neither of whom ever purchased tethers. So what accounting tricks were in play here is a little bit difficult to discern. So Bitfinex is using this Panamanian payments processor to try to maintain banking for the majority of their clients. Tether has no banking whatsoever. Neither company has completed their promised audit and traders and other people are growing increasingly skeptical of both Bitfinex and Tether throughout 2017. We're talking. What we're talking about right now is the backing of Tether, and we're talking about Bitfinex using this thing and having struggling with banking. But I actually want to hone in a bit on Crypto Capital Core itself because the business itself is fascinating. It was established in 2013, I believe, by Ivan Manuel Molina Lee, who not many people in this industry still uh, pay attention to this guy. He established this company long ago. Other people involved in this were, uh, were Reginald Fowler, who he was part owner of the Vikings at one time, and he tried to start his own football league. He has had a lot of issues since then, but he was a big name and he was a part of Crypto Capital Core. And then there were these two Israelis, brother and sister, Oz Yosef and Ravid Yosef. And they are on at, at large right now. We don't know where they are anymore. But all of these people essentially became wanted criminals at some point. Bitfinex wasn't alone in having resorted at one point or another to using Crypto Capital Core. Crypto Capital Core was a fake money services provider for almost every exchange that existed. So whether it was providing something for OKEX or Coinbase or Gemini or Kraken or whomever... They were essentially at, at some point in time helping every cryptocurrency exchange move some fiat. Most other cryptocurrency exchanges decisively noticed there was something wrong at Crypto Capital Core. Maybe that means they did the most basic of due diligence. Maybe that means that they finally decided to find out who the hell Oz Yosef was. Maybe they were having withdrawals and deposits being held up and they didn't know what was going on. So they just decided to bail. Regardless, a bunch of these other cryptocurrency exchanges and companies stopped utilizing Crypto Capital Core long before the end of Crypto Capital Core. The only exchange, the only couple exchanges I, I believe that we're aware of that were still using it at the time of its collapse and freezing of all of its funds were Quadriga CX and Bitfinex. There are other ones listed there, Coinapult and exchanges that we don't even really don't matter. But we do know that Bitfinex and Quadriga CX were still utilizing Crypto Capital Core as the house of cards came falling down. Yeah, so I don't know that Coinbase or Gemini ever had to use Crypto Capital Corp, but yeah, Quadriga used them, Kraken used them, BitMEX was another one that was a large exchange that was partnered with them, and obviously Bitfinex and Tether. We haven't really addressed how Crypto Capital Core collapsed, so we will get to that, and we will get to how that essentially played a factor in what has happened to Bitfinex and Tether since then, but Bitfinexed the pseudo-anonymous user who is on Twitter and Medium and YouTube appears at some point in 2017 discussing that there are big, huge problems at Bitfinex. This leads to the threat of a lawsuit from Bitfinex. This leads to what a lot of people would call FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, where this guy is talking about all of these things, a lot of them ending up being totally true, 
but the space rallied against him i would i would suggest and then shortly thereafter shortly after his appearance tether gets hacked so in november of 2017 tether is hacked for about 30 million tethers this is another one of those strange hacks because we never really get any explanation from tether or anyone as to what might have caused or contributed to this hack and in response to it tether basically called up all their exchange partners and stuff, gave them a new copy of the Omni client that Tethers were transacted on and said, run this version now. It'll freeze those hacked Tethers and they'll no longer be a problem. Shortly after this, uh, the Omni developers add in a new feature to the Omni layer that allows for the issuer of an asset to freeze the ones that are in circulation. So now Tether has the ability to freeze any Tethers in circulation. So again, yeah, the Tether hack is mostly important for couple of reasons. One, it's again just another hack of Bitfinex and Tether that no public explanation is given for. There's no evidence of any law enforcement involvement, and it just seems strange. Um, and then it shows that Tether's dominant economic position on many of the chains it transacts on affects the censorship resistance of those chains. So with the example of Omni, Tether was such a large portion of Omni's economic activity, they were basically able to at will force a hard fork of the entire layer. And the vast majority of the validators, the nodes, whatever Omni calls them, were forced to switch over. I mean, this is important now because you see a similar dynamic on chains like Tron, where Tether is just such a large portion of the economic activity on that chain. Even Ethereum, right? Even mm -hmm. let's let's not ignore the, the main reason that there's all, everyone's talking about scaling being impossible. And if you look at what is clogging up Ethereum, it's basically Tether transactions, right? I haven't looked at the gas breakdown recently. I know often with Ethereum, some of the really complex new transactions involving like multiple DeFi services will clog up a lot because they require interactions between a whole bunch of those. So intuitively, those might be a bigger problem. But Tether is a large portion of the uh, total number of transactions on Ethereum. I think part of the reason I think Tron is more vulnerable is because Tron has such a lower market cap and so much less economic activity than Ethereum. So the contrast is more jarring. It seems much more clear that Tether would be able to potentially affect Tron just due to how important it is to it. I think another key aspect to the hack, why and how does Tether get hacked? Because we can examine this and we, we don't know the answer. I'm not suggesting we know the answers to this, but what I'll tell you as someone who has spent years and years looking at Tether, hacking Tether is silly. Trying to steal tethers is very silly because they will just freeze those tethers and it's a completely centralized entity with the right to do that. The fact that they took those 31 million, 32 million, however much it was, and did it at all is kind of stupefying. It's it's almost a warning shot over the bow of Bitfinex and Tether, where whoever was able to do this, I don't know how, right? They, they had to have some multi-signature access, where if it takes more than one signature to print these Tethers, clearly someone was able to do that who wasn't supposed to be able to do that. Who's able to get into access the system and accomplish that? 
Well, I think there are still people who are concerned about that kind of thing. Uh, Peter McCormick on his podcast when he had on Stu and Paulo was even still asking them about that. Like, hey, who actually has the ability to print these and who has the ability to then, after they're printed, move them out of the treasury into other places? And they kind of evaded that question as well, saying that, like, the printing is multi-signature, the sending from the treasury is single signature, and didn't really say who was in charge of those different processes. Now, as for the motivations of the hacker, when they did the hack, it was not yet possible for Tether to easily freeze the tethers. They had to basically force a hard fork of the layer in order to do that. So it's possible that the hacker thought they would be able to get those tethers out and exchange them for something else before that they would get frozen, locked down, whatever. And so their goal was to get the tethers, exchange them, and then get out of whatever they exchanged it into. I don't necessarily think that it was meant as like a warning shot, but it's again, strange dynamics. It seems so odd that so often Bitfinex and Tether's keys are being compromised and there's zero explanation given as to how that occurred. Most exchanges after any kind of hack are providing detailed postmortems. Bitfinex and Tether never provided that kind of insight into any of these hacks. And I think that's part of the reason you've seen people persist in the belief for these years that it was someone connected to Bitfinex or Tether, someone who they would not want the information to come out as to who might have been connected to the hack. And to reiterate one other interesting point, I think, is that the coins from the Bitfinex hack still move around. Those Bitcoins from both the original small hot wallet hack and then the much larger hack that transpired, those coins, those Bitcoins are still moving around in the ecosystem. Whoever hacked them and took that still has access to those and does things with them. And then the hacked tethers, whoever uh, did that tried for, I, I think, years to still try to move those coins somehow. They were desperately trying to do these transactions that were failing. There's clearly people who have access to both of these addresses, all of these hacked addresses, and still try to utilize them. Yeah, yeah, it's a strange thing you see. I remember when we were looking at the uh, Tether hack wallet and you just see page after page of failed transaction as whoever controlled the address just kept trying to send those coins out of the wallet and they didn't move because the client does not allow those coins to move. Though the uh, hacker who stole those tethers and kept trying to send them was burning the Bitcoin transaction fee every single time they tried. They were I know, broadcasting. I know, they, they lost money. <laughs> On the $30 million hack. <laughs> so yeah, they spent years continually sending transactions to the Bitcoin network, desperate to move these Omni tokens that were forbidden by the <laughs> Omni client itself from ever moving. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, All of this is so, so strange. Again, that's not to say we have any answers. That's not to suggest that Bitfinex or Tether, there was some inside role in this stuff. There are examples of that in the cryptocurrency community where a, a rug is pulled and they say like, we got hacked. But the fact that Bitfinex and Tether tried to keep their company going after this makes it seem like there was some reality to these. I don't think they were necessarily fake, but I do think that Bitfinex and Tether know more about these hacks than they're willing to admit to publicly. Yeah, no, I think that's without a doubt true. Now let's talk about the bubble popping during the last bull run, the end of Crypto Capital Core, and how this all led up to the New York AG investigating and eventually settling with Bitfinex and Tether. 
So as we mentioned before, from March of 2017 to September of 2017, there were millions of unbacked tethers. Uh, the only backing for tether was the $60 million in Stu's account. The remainder of any backing they claimed to have was in an account that only received deposits from people who never bought tethers, which is, again, a very strange dynamic. Bitfinex and Tether, for both of their companies, would mix together their own corporate funds with client funds, commingled their funds, which is generally a thing that is a huge red flag for fraud and for uh, financial malfeasance. Then Bitfinex and Tether went one step further and decided to take the commingled Tether funds and the commingled Bitfinex funds and mix those together just to make sure that anyone who ever saw their books would have an immediate aneurysm. So Tether's unbanked, Bitfinex has banking, Tether issues tons of Tethers. I think from March to September of 2017, we go from like 55 million to 400 million or something like that. Bitcoin continues to blow up throughout all 2017 and especially in the second half of 2017. Both Bitfinex and Tether are allegedly trying to get audits by Friedman throughout this entire year, with Tether telling Friedman, we don't have a bank account yet, we will soon, we will soon. And then finally they tell Friedman, hey, we're going to have a bank account on September 15th. Before you finish the audit, can you provide like an interim report that shows on this date we've got the funds backing it? So on the morning of September 15th, Tether finally gets a bank account at Noble Bank, the not bank that Brock Pierce founded. Then they transfer in hundreds of millions of dollars from Bitfinex's Noble account to Tether's Noble account. That evening, Friedman does their verification of Tether reserves with the hundreds of millions of dollars that had just come from Bitfinex's account. Um, let, let me jump in here and just ex express what Bennett is saying is that not only is Tether not fully backed one-to-one, -one, but Tether is backed by who the fuck knows what. We don't know where these funds are coming from. We don't know if it's Bitcoin trades or anything. But I'll stop at the idea that it could possibly just be derived from cryptocurrencies or whatever, and they could be trading against their, their own clients. They could. They, we have no idea where this money comes from. So not only is Tether not backed one-to-one, -one, which at the time was still their promise, but even if they are backed, let's say 50%, 75%, that money, we don't have a clue where that money is coming from and, and from whom and why. Yeah. Yeah, that's an important thing to note here is that Tether is not Tether is outright lying to the public about how their business works throughout all of 2017 and that when the public starts to question them, starts to worry about their practices, they say, don't worry, we're going to have this firm show that we have these reserves. And that very same morning, they transfer hundreds of millions of dollars out of their sister company's account into their own so that the verification will show that they had the funds. That is just so shockingly duplicitous that it is offensive to me. <laughs> I'm, I, I too find a lot of their behavior offensive. I think it's unfortunate that we have to kind of, they're so sneaky that we have to like triple explain this stuff. It has to be explained in technical terms, financial terms, and then it has to be explained in layman's terms, right? But to uh, understand, you have to go, you have to walk yourself all the way back and say, Tether promises it's one-to-one -one backed. Tether promises that th they have a proper KYC program. Tether promises that they, ha that they do regular frequent audits. And then you realize they have succinctly 
avoided keeping any of those promises. And like the KYC one is one of my favorites because like early in uh, Tether's history, they advertised on their website that they would do no KYC exchanges between your Bitcoins and their Tethers. Like that was one of their selling points. It was in their FAQs. It was now they'll say in public, we have always had one of the most rigorous KYC programs in the industry. Always. Right. Right. And just everyone is like, yes, Tether has always had KYC. Yeah, and what, we we don't need to broach on it too much, but I do think there's a lot of traders who have moved away from Bitfinex because for a while people would be able to trade, make a ton of money, then they try to get their Bitcoin off, or they tried to get they'd try to withdraw coins they had, and then suddenly Bitfinex would decide we're KYCing you now. Bitfinex for a long time would basically allow traders to come in and out with no KYC as long as they didn't touch fiat. So if they came in in Bitcoin and left in Bitcoin, they could generally do it without KYC. Throughout 2017 and 2018, it was more often that they would end up requesting KYC for those traders, which is probably because, I mean, the honest explanation would be that Bitfinex and Tether were trying to anti-money laundering things, right? They were seeing weird patterns or whatever, and so they were obligated by law to look into these. Now, there's other potential explanations. So for a long time, Bitfinex would allow traders to come in and out without KYC. And that started to ratchet down a little bit during this period as well. After all of this stuff that we've discussed, we talked everyone through the early history of Bitfinex and Tether. We've talked about the, the broken promises. We've talked about the hacks and the red flags that we've noticed. At what point does this become something that the broader marketplace and not just broader marketplace, but public figures are paying attention to. There's always been some amount of interest in Tether and Bitfinex because there's fascinating stories here. But I think what, at least for the last couple of years, has really precipitated a lot of the interest in Bitfinex and Tether was in April of 2019, when the New York Attorney General's office filed for their uh, injunction against Bitfinex and Tether to prevent them from doing some of these conflicted transactions they were doing. To explain this, I'm going to need to go back in time a little bit again. So we talked about how for much of 2017, Tether was nominally unbacked by funds they claimed they were owed from Bitfinex's account. They eventually get their funds into that account in September of 2015. However, after that, they again start to have some banking issues leading up to Bitfinex basically repeatedly raiding Tether's bank account. Through the summer of 2018, there's several points where in order to service customer withdrawals, Bitfinex basically takes money out of Tether's accounts and says, Tether, you're now owed X amount from Crypto Capital Corp, if we're ever able to get that out. They continue to do this. We start to see more public and public questions about Bitfinex's solvency and Tether's backing. October of 2018, Bitfinex releases a medium post basically saying we're obviously solvent and anyone who says otherwise just doesn't know anything. Plus withdrawals are working great and we've never had any problems there. During the same period, Juan Carlo is desperately messaging Oz Yosef of Crypto Capital saying, hey, nobody can withdraw. Can you please help us out? So obviously withdrawals were not working as great as they were pretending in public. Tether, also for much of this period from the close of Noble On, is again unbanked until they finally end up landing at Deltec Bank in the Bahamas. 
On November 1st, 2018, Dell Tech Bank issues a letter saying that Tether's portfolio cash value exceeds the total number of Tethers in circulation. Tether's backed. On November 2nd, 2018, Bitfinex then withdraws hundreds of millions of dollars out of Tether's bank account, immediately making Tether once again unbacked. Again, we're seeing kind of the same pattern we saw there in September of 2017, where the money is there for the verification and not the day before, and probably not the day after. These verifications are, they appear fictitious. They appear like Bifinex and Tether trying to send a message, but not actually maintain the reserves necessary to do that. Bitfinex pulls just over 600 million out of Tether's account, says, Tether, you'll, you're now owed 600 million from Crypto Capital Corp, if we ever get that out. And at this point, it's pretty clear that Bitfinex is not likely to get those funds out of Crypto Capital Corp. This is after it's already come out that even Manuel Molina Lee, who's part of Crypto Capital Corp, had been arrested in Greece and extradited to Poland on suspicion of trying to launder hundreds of millions of dollars for the Colombian cartels through Bitfinex. So even Manuel Molina's been arrested, Bitfinex is at least somewhat aware that it's unlikely they're going to get all of their funds out of Crypto Capital Corp. They're raiding Tether, making Tether insolvent. Then in March of 2019, continuing to have these withdrawal issues, Bitfinex still being effectively insolvent and Tether being effectively unbacked, Bitfinex and Tether enter into what they call an arm's length loan agreement. This was a loan agreement in which Tether would allow up to $900 million of their reserves basically to be taken by Bitfinex on a resolving, on a revolving basis. And Bitfinex would pay them six and a half percent interest per year or something, if I remember right. They make a big show out of this, trying to claim that this is an arm's length agreement negotiated by separate counsel for each company, but then it's signed by the same people for each company, Juan Carlo and JLVDV. Shortly after the New York Attorney General becomes aware of this loan and becomes aware of some of the earlier transactions where Bitfinex had been raiding Tether's reserves, they then file for this injunction to say, stop raiding Tether's reserves, which then makes the world aware that Bitfinex and Tether had been engaging in these kind of transactions for an extended period of time. Okay, I'm going to do my best to kind of sum this up. What, what happened was... Bitfinex and Tether were struggling with banking. They were struggling whether it came to Noble, which appeared and then di almost disappeared as soon as it appeared. They lost any bank that had an American correspondent bank. So they, they were desperately, there were a bunch of banks that they actually went through. You didn't mention them, but I think they, went, they had an HSBC account at one time. They had a bunch of different accounts that they essentially weren't supposed to have, and they got booted from each of these sequentially. So each time they would get a new bank account with whatever random bank, they would tell, they would specifically tell their customers, do not share our correspondent banking information with the public, because if you do that, we're going to lose banking again. And they would, they would lose banking over and over and over again. Because they kept losing banking and because no banks trusted them on their word, which I think we've gone through enough to understand why these banks didn't trust them. These guys were losing banking repeatedly because they were lying about things. It's not because they were just interacting with cryptocurrency. If that were the case, they would have found a reliable U.S. correspondent banking partner that didn't have an issue with what they're what they're doing now and they still are working with some random offshore 
bank that no one has heard of in the Bahamas up until they started working with Tether. Anyway, because they're having so many banking problems and because they're working with money services providers that aren't actually money services providers, they end up losing a bunch of their customer and client funds and their own corporate funds that have all been commingled to the point where you couldn't possibly tell the difference between Tether or Bitfinex anymore. So while Bitfinex may be insolvent and Tether might be unbacked, it's actually impossible to decipher which one is which. And once these things become so convoluted and so opaque, after they've loaned money to each other back and forth, it's become undecipherable. The New York Attorney General steps in and says, we're going to enact the, the Martin Act and we are going to look into you because there's some shady fucking business going on right now. And I think this is one of those cases we were talking about in the last one where we are at a moment where either Bitfinex and Tether are fraudulent or they are shockingly incompetent. Like just the absolute failure to segregate these accounts, to keep these kind of things separate, to disclose any of this to the public. It just feels like one of those moments where there is no good explanation for what Bitfinex and Tether were doing. Yeah, this is where you and I tend to agree that you can you can look at it. For me, you can look at it kind of one or one of two ways. One, criminal negligence. They weren't paying attention or fraud. Both of those are bad. One, I think, is much worse than the other. So fraud is much worse than criminal negligence. Ne criminal negligence just means you really weren't paying attention. Fraud means you purposely were not doing what you should have been doing to deceive people and make money. Anyway, we have the New York AG bring this investigation against them, start looking into them and thinking about moving through courts to do something about it. And that's how we reached the settlement, which if you are in this space, you probably heard about the settlement over the past couple weeks. Has it been? It's been that long, right? It's been two two weeks or so now? Something like that. Uh, February. Yeah, it's been just about two weeks. Right. February 23rd, I think, or 22nd. So, so a lot of cryptocurrency advocates heralded this, this settlement as this is it. This is the point where Tether has proven it isn't unbacked. Tether is in the clear now. Everything is good to go. You and I seem to have a bit of an issue with that take, and, and let's explore why. Sure. So my biggest issue with that take is twofold. First, it shows us that there were large periods of time where we are we can be pretty confident that either Bitfinex was insolvent or Tether was unbacked, and these are now pretty well documented. So we have from March 2017 until September 2017, when there's a whole bunch of unbacked tethers issued into the market. Uh, starting in August of 2018, Bitfinex rating the accounts of Tether, again, making Tether's unbacked. November 1st of 2018, we get the verification that Tether is backed for that day alone. And then again, Bitfinex starts rating the account to deal with their own withdrawal issues. And since November 1st of 2018, when we got the Deltec letter that again, did not confirm they had the appropriate amount of currency, it solely confirmed that their portfolio cash value was sufficient to back the Tethers. Since then, there has been zero verification of Tethers reserves. How that shows Tether is exonerated, I am unclear. The other part of it is people see the $18.5 million fine levied against a $36 billion assets under management business and go, well, that's nothing. They'll pay that. It'll be no big deal. But there's a whole bunch 
of other parts of the settlement that make it potentially more challenging for Tether. Specifically, every 90 days, Tether is now supposed to show third-party verification of their reserves and what makes up their reserves. So now, four times a year, that's going to be released into the marketplace and everyone's going to have some insight into backing Tether. Yeah, and that's for the next two years. And there's other caveats in there. So if the New York AG finds discrepancies in the numbers, they're going to give Bitfinex and Tether warning. So before we would ever see dramatic action from, I don't know, the New York Attorney General or some other regulatory actor, they would be provided with this cushion where they would have the ability to explain away any issue that may have reared its head. So... That's my understanding for a breach of the settlement, where if they go against any of the terms they've agreed to. Now, there is another condition which, by my understanding, does not require the 30 days. And that is, if any of Tether or Bitfinex's executives or documents were falsified, misrepresenting, or dishonest in any way, the settlement itself becomes invalid. Bitfinex and Tether are no longer protected from prosecution by the New York Attorney General for the things during this period, and they do not need to give the 30 days warning. Let's remind everyone that neither of us are lawyers or pretend we are. Neither of us are journalists. Neither of us are professionals on any of those levels. So if if you want to have a really good idea about this legally, talk to a lawyer. If you really want to understand this and weigh the financial risks of all of this stuff, you should speak to a fiduciary. I think I've always loved the idea of don't trust verify. If you take any issue with the ideas and concepts that we're expressing here, don't believe us. I, I urge you not to believe us. I urge you to research this stuff on your own. That's actually part of my goal being here, and I assume part of yours, Bennett. If I can get people to start looking into Bitfinex and Tether, I, I don't think I have to do much speaking at all. I think most people would see the risk there and be like, oh, this is ugly and I don't want to be a part of it. I've assumed for years that if people looked at Bitfinex and Tether, they would go, oh my God, that doesn't look great. I don't want to be a part of this. So yeah, that's part of my motivation, but I don't know how effective it's been for the last three years. (laughs) I don't think that most market participants in any market necessarily are going to go out and educate themselves on everything that that they need to. I remember seeing Tether for the first time in 2017 and being like, oh, It's just a dollar token. Like I had no issue with it whatsoever when I first stumbled upon Tether. And you really have to dive pretty deep before you start seeing, oh, geez, there's a ton of issues here that I I need to be thinking about. We've reached a point, like Bennett said, we've reached a point where the New York AG has settled with Tether and Bitfinex. And there's a DOJ uh, investigation, ongoing investigation into both of them. But otherwise, this is like a very quiet time on the front. There's nothing for us to be discussing right now because we have to wait and see what happens in the next 75, 80 days uh, in regard to that report that is going to come out, right? And if the DOJ were to decide to do something about any of this, we have no understanding, control, or connections. So it's a very quiet time right now. And I, I think this is actually a great time for traders and other market participants to reflect on the role that the ongoing role that Tether plays, the ongoing role that Bitfinex plays, the leadership that they've acquired and stuck by despite a lot of the problems that they've had, what those risks 
are going to mean for the market if they're ever realized. I think this discussion comes at the right time. And hopefully people don't just take away the idea that we're salty no-coiners, but instead take away the idea that we're exploring something that a lot of people have ignored and calling attention to something that we think is a legitimate risk. Yeah, plus we've both been coiners at different points. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks again for listening. This is part two of a three-part conversation. The third part is mostly going to consist of us answering questions that the audience has presented to us. So far, we have 10 or 15 questions. I would love to see more, so please feel free to reach out, whether it's on Twitter publicly or through DMs. Bennett, Tomlin, and I are both available. If we don't see your question for some reason, hopefully we can address it online. Otherwise, that's part two of part three. And within a week, I hope to have the next part out to you guys. Appreciate it.